People died in the job. <laughs> people were raped in the job. The place wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a place where people felt secure. So what did you do, you know, in this whole process? And then once you had it, you developed a boundary that was very hard to maintain. That's former Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. Welcome to this special edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Norm Rice was elected mayor of Seattle in 1989 and served two terms. He was the first African-American in U.S. history to win a mayoral race in a major metropolitan city where the total population of African-Americans at the time was just 10%. What makes this landslide even more impressive is that the election took place during one of the most divisive times in Seattle's history. Seattle was torn apart over the issue of busing to achieve school desegregation. On the same ballot with Norm was an anti-busing initiative sponsored by his opponent in the race. So a quick review. An extremely divisive issue that Norm opposed passes, and Norm wins by a landslide. Now this is something worth taking another look at, especially because of the disruptive times we are going through right now in Seattle and in the country. Norm recently authored a book, Gaining Public Trust, A Profile of City Engagement. The book is available on Amazon. What jumped out at me after reading the book is that his success in unifying a fragmented city was no accident. It took experience, patience, imagination, execution, authentic listening, gaining trust, and having a very strong analytical mind to persevere. Fortunately for Norm, he also developed a good sense of humor that got him through the more difficult moments. And he also understood that he was mayor of all of Seattle, not just the people who voted for him. So let's get to it. The following is a conversation I had with Norm about some of his major initiatives during his time as mayor. I want to start with November 7th, 1989, and that's the night that you were elected mayor. And you won by a substantial amount, 58% to 42%. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, how did you feel at that moment when, I don't know, whoever came in and said, you're the next mayor of Seattle? I think I was always cautious, so I had to pinch pinch myself about two or four times and say, really? (laughs) But... uh, I knew we had a message, and I knew we were going in the right place, and I felt pretty good about it. You know, so you were optimistic. Uh, yeah, yes, I was. Well, when I look at being optimistic as the backdrop, when you were running in a very contentious primary and in a very contentious time, right. with the uh, right alongside the same ballot was an anti-busing initiative, and, and I was, uh, you were pro. Uh, or not, I was. Were, I was. A, I was against the anti-busing, right? And and he uh, was for, and that passed. That was his initiative, actually. Yeah, and, and the initiative passed, yep. but uh, and you won as well. Now that is an interesting. Yeah, I always right say there. people got to vote their hopes and their dreams all in the same election. So people got to vote against busing, which they didn't like, and they voted for me. When they said, well, maybe he can fix it. <laughs> All right. So why did they vote for you then? What? How did you come across in the campaign where people felt that that was a good way to go? Boy, that's a little more complicated than you think. I think 
you've, you've got to remember, besides the busing issue, my qualifications for being mayor were pretty strong. As finance and budget chair, I was involved with the city for close to ele- uh, city council for 11 years. So there was a sense of qualifications and things that I did that people liked. During that campaign, I didn't run, I didn't accuse people who were against busing as being racist or an, or anything like that. I just said there was a better way, you know, to, to move. So I think people saw that through my qualifications, finance and budget chair, uh, 11 years on the city council, that I had the pedigree and the ability to lead. And so they may not have liked busing, but they didn't think that they were not against my qualifications to lead the city. But uh, you didn't uh, file until the last 10 minutes oh, on no. a Friday afternoon, so you weren't convinced at that point. What? Why were you hesitant, and what made you then well, file? Well, people forget. Remember, I ran for mayor and lost. I ran for Congress and lost. So I didn't think that I was really going to be uh, marketable. I was, you know, even though I had a solid record as a city council member and everything. But when you lose, you have to ask yourself, why did I lose and do I have the capability to ever win? So I was really thinking, well, maybe someone else has to do it. But then finally, in that up to the election in Valley, I kept waiting for someone to challenge the person who was uh, with the anti-busing and no one was doing it. And I really felt that it was going to be important to challenge that assumption since it was an initiative that was on the ballot. It was citywide. You couldn't walk away from it. There are some people who tried to. They said, well, repealing busing in this issue isn't an issue for the city, so they didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But it was the issue in the city. It was the biggest issue. <laughs> it's the elephant in the room. So if you weren't going to really come to that point of view, you were missing the point. And so I decided that I needed to at least stand on that issue too. And I think you expressed that because you did step up and do that, got you into the finals. You separated yourself from, because there was like 14 people running for mayor at that yeah. time or something. I almost forgotten now, but it was a lot. Right. Was, I think it was 11. But right. you, yeah, it was a lot of people. At the end of the day, my qualifications and, and my leadership were solid. It was really about who is Norman Rice and where does he stand on some of the issues. See, I was finance and budget chair on the city council, so... Most everything you did with the Finance and Budget Committee is black and white. You know, the budget has to balance. You cut, you add, and you make sure it ends. So it was very simple. The issue of busing and the issue with an issue that wasn't even the city's purview was a little harder. But then that's the issue of leadership. Leadership is trying to direct and give a narrative that may make people move in a, a better direction. Is that how your education summit was born? That's really where we really came through. When the remember, I, I always tell everybody they forget. I won the election to repeal busing. Passed, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so people you looked at that and said, "Duh! What do you do then? How do you bring a divided community together and move forward?" So the issue was then we should try to see how we could do that, and that was the essence of the education summit that we would ask the community to come together and redefine what we wanted in education and where we wanted to go. And I, I think in any of those kinds of debates, you've got to move from should you have busing or not have busing. That's a different debate. The bigger debate is what do you want for our children and where are you going in the future? And then you find there's more common ground than not. So then you ask people to come together and try to 
define that. Yeah, and it seemed to me like uh, what an effort to put that together. I remember when, and I think we talked about this, about having the educational summit. And at the time, I was thinking, that's nice. What a lofty goal, and is this really going to work out? You know, people say this all the time, and then they move on, and then they'll put it back in their next election campaign or something when you do this. But you jumped on this, and also you had that inherent idea or somebody gave it to you or what, really setting up a procedure that you had people who weren't necessarily the stakeholders within, let's say, the school districts and things like that, that you had to appease or mm-hmm. get them on board. But you had people outside oh, yeah. to come in and do this, and that's the only way it would work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Wow. <laughs> that's an hour. <laughs> I don't. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was one of those things that when people vote their emotions, the real people busting, it wasn't about where they wanted to go with education. Where did they want their children to go? We had to change that narrative about not killing busing, but talking about where do we want our children to go? What kind of education system do we need to have? How can we make every child move forward? And after a while, as we got people together, we called for a summit, education summit. We got people to start to talk about it. And I remember at the end of, uh, I think it was a two-day summit, We had a a whiteboard, and what jumped out was everybody wanted to say the same thing. We want our children to be safe, healthy, and ready to learn. And one of the things that after that came out, we said, that's something the city can help with. So I didn't have to take over the schools and try to deal with the education curriculum. Making children safe, healthy, and ready to learn made people say, okay, that's something the city can do. That's something the city can move forward to. And that brought everybody back to the table, you know, to talk about quality education and what's the underpinning for what it was. I think it also, to some degree, soothed the school board who thought that somehow I was going to try to take over schools. You know, I was going to ask that question. How would that relationship work? Well, I think they were a little distrustful. Uh, uh, I think they were wondering, what is this guy going to do? And, you know, but it was... It, I've always been about partnerships, always trying to collaborate. And then how do you pay for it? <laughs> you know, and that's what the family and education levy came out of. So after the summits, we had summits. We had summits all over the city. I can't remember. We had 12 or 14 places that people came Yeah, one together. like on a weekend in April uh-huh. and then followed up with another one in May. Yep. And so people began to define what it was they wanted with education, what do they want for their children. And that's when the uh, overhead of safe, healthy, and ready to learn. We looked at that and said, that's something the city can invest in. And that's when we moved with we could put on the ballot uh, initiative to make every child safe, healthy, and ready to learn and put those dollars there on the table. And by putting those dollars on the table, that could relieve the school board and the schools from putting so much money there. So that was the partnership. Uh, and, and I think they felt better because they knew then the mayor's not trying to take over the schools, you know, those kinds of things that are so political and divisive. So they had a, a very good partner. And I think that helped soothe everybody to start looking forward about what is a quality educational system for, for the city. And the citizens responded by passing the, uh, levy in mm-hmm. several months later. So this was a, 
very compact process. It seems like it's long. Yeah, it does. But it certainly wasn't. I mean, to have this happen, it was like $57 million divided up over like five or six years. God, you remember more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I read your great book. We're going to talk about that in a moment. No, but, I understand. Um, no, seriously. It was quite a remarkable yeah. process, step process that went because I think mentioned to you, I did some community relations metro when, right. with your uh, right. wife, Constance, and things. And so I was fascinated by this to as we use this is community relations. Well, sometimes that's about going out and getting a public hearing, right. saying what you want, and then writing it down and going back, and that's it. Well, it's more than that. It was. And, and that's the big thing I wanted to turn to next, and that is listening and hearing what people have to say first. Get everybody out there to say what they feel, and you will find some common ground. And then that's the way we did it, and then there's a second part to it. You've got to go back, and then you have to say, here's what you said. And then you ask for confirmation. So often people have public hearings. Everybody comes and tells you what they think. You walk away, and then you come up with something, and everybody says, that's not what I said. So we ask for validation. You said that you wanted these kinds of things. Does that work? So by having that dialogue, we got more people to own own the the direction too. Because once you get somebody in a dialogue to say, no, that's not quite what I meant. I meant this. You're starting to create a partnership. I'm beginning to understand. They're understanding. We're beginning to understand better. The trouble with most of a public hearing process, you go, you have a public hearing, everybody gives you a whole bunch of information, you leave, come back with a plan, and then you're shocked when people say, that's not what I said. Okay, here's where we are now. Are we on the right track? And then we ask people to be a part of it. So often you have public hearings, you get people involved, you go back into bureaucracy, and they never see it again. And I think that helped with the school board and other things. Everybody was afraid that I was going to try to come out and take over schools. I always tell people that if if governance drives your decision rather than the output of, of making people's lives better, you're going to lose because everybody's into command and control. But the real thing is how do you distribute assets and, and, and positive things to the community so they could see it? And one of the things we did, we made sure that everybody, every department in the city came up with a complimentary effort to help schools. So along the way, the school board saw, oh, Norm's not trying to take over the schools. He's trying to help us. Trying to make our job easier. Exactly. And then trust is built. So when everybody saw that I wasn't going to try to take over the schools, when I was saying I'd be a partner, I think the only thing I have a little bit of regret was that we couldn't figure out a way to – put a measurement on how schools might be better, you know, as they, they moved along. But then I would have had to try to take over schools and we'd have probably lost, lost the battle. Do you think uh, the city should run the school districts? No, I, I, I don't think that 100%. It depends on the area and what you're doing. We were never set up to do that, so therefore I think it would be difficult. I think uh, uh, the biggest issue with schools and everything else – Matter of fact, in retrospect, the city wasn't as capable of dealing with the the school district as as we would like to be. What I mean by that is school board members ran by districts. City council ran at large. So there was a disconnect. I see. Okay. You see, every mayor, I think, since has said – I want to have, you know, the schools to report to the city. And then that's a campaign I always hear, and then nothing ever happens. No. So I'm like, why do we even bring this up anymore? Well, I think people think that they can make it better. But, you know, 
a partnership is better than just a governance, a governance ship, so to speak. So when you ask people to do things that help people's kids and not necessarily run a bureaucracy to do it, people are more willing to do it. But if you're trying to put a structure up, then the structure becomes the almost the barrier to success. So what do teachers need? What do parents need so that their children can learn and grow? There is a partnership there. <laughs> Make Certainly. no mistake. So you got to, there's old saying I, I like to use, give a little, get a lot. Sure. You know, so don't try to take it all. Right. Try yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. Then you get more buy-in. It, it's, it's, it's as simple as your next door neighbor. How can I help you? What do you need from me to help you do your job better? So let's get into the book for a moment because uh, you wrote this uh, very recently, and I think we've talked about this. It couldn't be more timely about what the city is up against now. There are some lessons that with the Education Summit that you put in your book about solving some of the problems we have today, like homelessness. I go uh, back and forth on that, Paul. It's more difficult, and, and even today as I look at it, it's harder. What's different today than when I was mayor? We didn't have districts. Every council member had to look at the city as a whole. So when you think about the city as a whole, when you think what's necessary for everybody to be moving in one direction, that's a different strategy than in a district where you've got all the disparities of income and other things that make your district different. Now, I'll probably be be beaten up by council members. But, you know, if you have a district, your majority is smaller. There's a tendency sometimes even in the district to pander. I'll give you an example, and I'll probably get in trouble for this. This issue facing the city today, you're able to make activists and people who are against something mobilize easier than when you're talking about the city as a whole and what you need to do. I don't envy the mayor to try to walk through that. But I do say that where is that place that you can bring people together and get them to bring their voices down to say where we're going, not what we're against. Where are you going to let everybody take a breath and breathe? Uh, Right now, that place isn't there. So it's really kind of uh, the perfect storm of events, and I think that goes into social media and uh, the way we cover the news today. I mean, people are on this 24-7. There's no time to digest it. I think that's part of it too, right? Yeah. I, I... you're going to get me off track, but I'll, I get to say what I want now. <laughs> of course you do. We need a healer. We need a healer in chief. We need somebody who can bring it down a notch and make people listen, a place where they can express themselves. Right now, everybody's mad about busing, but, you know, it wasn't about busing. It's about how do we get quality education for all of our children. It's sort of like even today with police and killings and everything else. What is it that you're really talking about? And so how do you bring down the anger and focus it into a positive direction? And the more angry you are, the harder it is to do it. And the other thing you need to have is a willingness to spend some of your political capital. It's easy to make people angry and keep them angry. It's another thing to get them to come together and kind of say, okay, I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to work with you. And I'll go with you along this way. Well, that horse has left the barn, I think, in some ways. I don't know how we're going to get that horse back in the barn, but you are more optimistic than me, and that's what I've always liked about you. And I actually moved downtown in the 90s and saw it grow the way it did. But a little bit about that, too, that you were facing when you came in there. And and if I'm correct here, you use some of the same resources in the model that you use in the Education Summit? To some degree, but not in the same way. You know, it wasn't as uh, broad in the whole area. But what is it in a city that you need? 
retail in a city that lives on the sales tax and everything else. You've got to make it a, a good place for businesses to stay and for businesses to thrive. And and so, you know, where's the revenue going to come from in a city that doesn't have income tax? It's the sales tax. So the last thing you want to do is just penalize people who have a sales tax without giving them something, and that's part of what was uh, uh, downtown, Westlake, and all the kinds of investments we made to make downtown good. I, I Today, I just scratch my head when you're pushing Amazon out and everybody else. And actually, what are you going to have in the city to help pay for the things you want? So you need a thriving retail. You need a thriving commercial. You need all these kinds of things to pay for the things that our citizens want. Yeah, so what do you think about the Amazon tax and how that all came down? It's, it, it, like I said, it, it's disappointing. Uh, I'm not going to get into the politics of Amazon, but the, the idea that you don't want businesses in your city and you can't come up with an alternative for what's going to happen if they leave, that doesn't make sense. And if you are not looking at trying to keep businesses here that hire people, you're going to lose the city. Walk downtown today. See those vacant buildings and everything you have, and it's depressing. So, uh, you know, everybody used to tease me sometimes and say, scratching on rice, you find a banker. Well, it wasn't that. It's how do you pay for it? I got that from my father. Mm. You know, when I said, can I have a dime? And he said, what are you going to do with it? And if I didn't tell him I was going to save it or invest it, <laughs> I didn't get a dime. It's like with the city. You don't just tax the businesses. you got to give the businesses something that they can make sure they are still keeping customers coming in. You've got to have a thriving economy for your city to pay for the things you want. And you can't make businesses the enemy. You have to make them your part. And while you say that, you do recognize, and I read it in your book, about you don't want it to be in um, what an Uber class and a homelessness class yeah. in between, that you have to have that middle-income person in the city and not drive them out either. That's true. That's true. And that's why one of the reasons you were so for urbanization areas, high-density areas. Well, you know, if you think through some of the themes we have, you want people to live, work, and play in your city. You want people to come in and go out because then they don't always have the same investment about the whole city. You want people to live in the city and not have to go looking for jobs elsewhere. So you want to have that dynamism that says, I'm an owner of that city, too, that you've got to give them the amenities that they need so that they see staying in the city as a good place to be. I remember in the 80s when I'd go through the city before I moved downtown, it was an 8 to 5 city. I mean, it was just vacant after 5 o'clock. Exactly. By the end of the 90s, into the early 2000s, you could see a huge difference in people living there as well. And I thought that was such a wonderful transition. Well, like we even looked at it from the standpoint theaters, other kinds of things, you know. So the last thing you want is for people to go elsewhere from one thing and another place to the other place. You want to have the dynamism of a city that has life. Nowadays, though, it's it's harder. I, I, I shake my head some days. How do you uncover and how do you get people to breathe? Uh, first of all, you show that you understand it. Secondly, you start thinking of things that make people feel a little better. Doing Right. You had a quote in your book, something along those lines. Some people would rather you hear their complaint than solve their problem. Right. That's right. That they know they're being heard, how yeah. important that is. And and it's so simple. And the reason I, I use that a lot, and, and you understand as well as I do, when you can use their words – 
in the narrative that you're using to build, they'll trust you because they know you listen to them. Looking at a real specific issue that we dealt with over the summer, and that is the protests and all the things that happened in the downtown core, what were you thinking during that time? (laughs) Boy, you would ask that question. I never felt so much pain in my whole life than during this whole process. And, and feeling a little more impotent, you know. And, and I've been quiet because I don't like, I have not ever got on the air and criticized the mayor or the council or anything else. But I said it earlier and I'll say it again. No one was healing. Everybody was angry. But nobody was really trying to move in a more positive way. And we let it get away from us in a, a million different ways. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm sitting here, I know what you want to do. But, you know, the uh, I'll give you some analogies. I'm going to get in trouble with this, but anyway, I'll say it anyway. But the chop. Someone thought that was a good idea. But people died in the chop. <laughs> people were raped in the chop. The place wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a place where people felt secure. So what did you do, you know, in this whole process? And then once you had it, you developed a boundary that was very hard to maintain. And then in the middle of there, right a couple blocks away, is a precinct. And so it becomes the, the, the fort that you charge. You know, you could see the match and you could see the flame. You know what's going to happen? I think the hardest thing for me, and I'm now regretting what I'm telling you now because it's hard. I don't want to criticize the mayor or anybody else. It's some tough times. You know, people were shot by police, you know, and if you try to take them separately as they are, the cumulative effect of it was beyond what I think anybody ever thought. What I mean by that? A man in the South jogging, get shot by three people for no good reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, another man with a knee on his neck saying, I can't breathe. He dies or in some ways at no good reason. So, you know, and no one kind of figures out a way to temper it. No one knows how to respond to it. Don't be surprised that you get this anger. And then what makes it even more difficult is people who have other agendas can take advantage of that anger and that despair. So what do you do? How do you come into that sphere and bring it down a notch and try to make something out of it? How do you bring a sense of community or regain a sense of community in where you want to go? Everybody has, in, in a leaderless society that we are right now, has an agenda how to do it, but they aren't doing anything to heal or bring people together. I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is that this interview is over for today. The good news is that Norm will return next week. If you would like to get a copy of Norm's book, Gaining Public Trust, the book is available on Amazon. Just input Norman Rice on the Amazon search bar. Don't forget the Norman in Norm, Norman Rice. All proceeds go to the Northwest African American Museum. You have been listening to this special edition of Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. If you would like to get in touch with me for any reason, 
You can call 206-459-5536 or you can email me at paul at casey communications.net. Have a great rest of the week.